We have been taking a journey through the biblical narrative for the past year or so, starting at the beginning with Genesis last year. We've been working our way through the Bible stories, and we found ourselves past the stage where Israel was brought out of slavery. They were brought through the wilderness to the promised land, where initially they formed a confederation of sorts of of 12 individual tribes trying to support each other, but it wasn't very strong. They had a lot of problems, and the judges and the prophets led them through a theocratic era. At the end of that time, they decided to unite together and make a kingdom and get their first king. And they had King Saul, of course, who was, who was a good king initially, but then he went off the rails. And Saul became a, a terrible uh, leader after a while. God raised up a young man named David to be a future king, but as David's star rose within Israel... Saul became concerned and jealous about him and tried to hunt him down and kill him, so David fled the country. After Saul died, David came back to Israel, and he was given the throne, not of the entire nation, but of his own tribe. David was from the tribe of Judah. I'm reviewing a little bit here for the sake of today, so bear with me. David came back to reign over the tribe of Judah, which was the southern tribe of Israel. Israel had 12 tribes, and on the southern end was the largest tribe, Judah. The tribes above it were not as big as Judah, but they were more, and collectively they were bigger. And and so David returned when Saul died, and, and he took the throne of Judah, but the rest of Israel backed one of Saul's surviving sons to be their king. And you had the house of of Saul up north, the house of David in the south, and it stayed divided for like seven-plus years at the end of which time the kingdom came together under the reign of David for several more decades. Uh, David was a military leader for much of his reign. By the time he was done, um, Israel was very secure. Uh, One of the things David accomplished as a review is he wanted to move the capital city up from Hebron, up north, because Hebron was central for the tribe of Judah. But now that he reigned over the whole country, it wasn't central for everybody. So he moved as far north as he could to a city called Jerusalem, which they still had to conquer, because it's a whole story about how that worked out. They, they conquered Jerusalem, made it their capital city. Jerusalem sat on the border of the tribe of, of Judah up north, on the edge of the tribe of Benjamin. And from there, he established a new a capital city. They, uh, another king named Hiram built a palace for David in the new city. And David wanted to build a temple for the Lord. He moved the Ark of the Lord there and the tabernacle. But God told him, no, it's not time to build the temple. You secure the nation foreign and, and war-wise, and your son will have a reign of peace to build the temple. So David did a lot of good work. When David passed away, his son Solomon took the throne. And Solomon decided it's time to really expand. During a time of national prosperity and security, he decided to do a lot of rebuilding of Jerusalem. So he ended up um, raising a lot of money and manpower through two methods. And this is important for today's story, so I'm just reviewing a little bit more. He raised money and manpower through taxes. He taxed the whole nation throughout his reign. And number two, he raised money through drafting young people. Once the young people turned into young adults, he drafted them to come and work for the kingdom for two years. And they would go back home and start their families afterwards. It was not a military draft. It was a civil service draft. 
But the way by doing that, he got general labor for his projects. The taxes paid for the materials, and the taxes paid for the skilled labor, and the draft allowed them to have general labor. And through the decades, he built, they built the temple in Jerusalem, took about seven years, built a new palace for the future kings of, of, of Israel, took like 14 more years. They built the walls of the city more fortified, and they, re, they basically made the city opulent, beautiful, and very secure. It was such a, an amazing work over Solomon's reign that people came from other countries to see it, like a marvel of the world at that time. And we have records of people coming to Jerusalem to see the beautiful city and to hear Solomon's wisdom. But as people... Um, as they secured the city, the people who were paying for that through their children's drafting and their own drafting of labor and through their taxes, they got tired of it. It was fine for a few years. It was fine to build the temple, but it just kept going on and on for years and decades later. And now other things were being accomplished, but everyone was sick of it. During that time, there was a young man. We saw him a few weeks ago. His name was Jeroboam. He was a rising star in Israel he was placed in charge of certain tribes during the draft, during Solomon's drafting of civil labor. Solomon placed Jeroboam in charge because he had tremendous leadership ability. But one day, God began to tell Solomon that Solomon was going the wrong direction. Solomon had married a lot of different women, and as he got to know the different religions that came with his wives from so many different countries, he began to abandon his faith in God and look for other ideas of faith, and as I've often said throughout the weeks, that when we abandon God who made us and made the world, when we abandon him and his ways, we abandon best practices. And so Solomon began to walk away from best practices when he walked away from God and followed all the different ideas of how faith worked elsewhere. And his nation began weakened, to begin weakened under his new administration in his older years. And the prophets of God warned him, but he didn't listen. And so one day a prophet came to young Jeroboam in the field and said, Jeroboam, you're going to be, there's going to be a splintering of the kingdom. And the tribe of Judah is going to stay with David as a promise to uh, Solomon's father, David. But the rest of the nation is going to break off and you'll be the future king. And Solomon heard about it, became jealous of Jeroboam. Jeroboam ran for his life and moved to Egypt in exile. As long as Solomon was alive, he stayed out of the country. And that's all the review to catch us up to where we are today. Solomon eventually died, and his son Rehoboam took the throne of Israel. When, I see, when we see Rehoboam's name, let me tell you this, when we see Rehoboam's name, think of he's the one that Solomon is writing his letters to. Remember the book of, the book of Proverbs? A lot of that was written to all people, but especially written to his children, especially written to his future king son named Rehoboam. But Solomon abandoned those practices in his later years, and Rehoboam never really followed them either. And that takes us to the reign of Rehoboam today. Our entire talk today will be found in 1 Kings chapter 12. If you want to follow along there, 1 Kings chapter 12 is where we will work through. And we'll begin with the very first verse. Ready? Rehoboam went to Shechem. I'm sorry, yes, go back, Laura. I, I didn't say this. I want to go back. It's my fault. We're starting today a little mini-series within our series. We're calling it Thrones, just so you know. Thrones is... Um, is going to talk about this, this next era of Israel, and it's going to be adventurous for the next few months. You don't want to miss all the things we're going to learn about. It's, uh, it's cool. It's, it's movie material right there. But anyhow, 
Let's jump into chapter 12, verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem, where all Israel had gathered to make him the king. Now, now Shechem, you might wonder, why did they not do this in Jerusalem? If Jerusalem's the capital city, why not do the coronation of the new king in Jerusalem? But the reason was because Shechem, even though Jerusalem was as north as you could still be in Judah, the tribe of Judah, to be central to the kingdom, it was not truly central to the kingdom. Shechem was closer to center, which allowed people to come from all directions and have a really good turnout for the big day. So, so Rehoboam wants a big turnout for his coronation, so they move it up to Shechem, where all the nation can easily get there and make it a whole party. And this is, let's be honest, this is a big day for Rehoboam. He's been waiting to take the throne. It's like Prince Charles waiting forever to become King Charles, but Queen Elizabeth keeps keeps staying on the throne, you know, and then he finally gets his chance, and then next thing you know, William's going to take over, right? So, I mean, Rehoboam's, his moment is finally arriving. He can't wait. And so he goes to Shechem, and Israel gathers together. for his, It's bigger than a sweet 16 party. It's bigger than a, a, a wedding reception. It is his crowning moment, and he wants everyone there to celebrate. Verse 2 says that when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of this, he returned from Egypt, for he had fled to Egypt to escape from King Solomon. The leaders of Israel summoned him, and Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel went to speak with Rehoboam. This is important. They show up to the coronation with an agenda. They aren't just there to celebrate, oh yeah, new king, wonderful. They want some policy change, and they're not going to wait around until the party's over to ask. They're going to show up on the we're going to show up to the main event and, and bring it up, which is not going to go over very well for Rehoboam. But they show, and here's their request, verse 4. They said, your father was a hard master. Lighten the harsh labor demands and the heavy taxes that your father imposed on us. And then we will be your loyal subjects. Lighten the load. Okay, guys, there's the wind. I see you all distracted. It's going to do it all day. There's wind gusts up to 40 miles an hour. Just get, here it comes, okay? We will survive, most likely. Okay, anyhow, um, but here's the deal. They said, lighten the harsh labor. Lighten the heavy taxes. You know what they're asking for? They are asking for a break. They're like, listen, we understand what your dad did. He was building the temple, but then he kept building more stuff and building more stuff. Can you please take the taxes down a little bit? Can you please stop drafting our kids to, to leave our homes and our cities to do the work? Give us a break. If you'll do that, you will be the most popular king, and we will love you and serve you forever. Please. Well, this is, again, not what Rehoboam was hoping to hear on his coronation party. You know, change how you lead. And especially when he sees Jeroboam, who was his father's nemesis, showing up to lead the conversation. So Rehoboam replied, he said, I knew you were trouble when you walked in. He says, hey, he says, give me three days to think this over and then come back for my answer. So the people went away. He says, I need a few days to think about it. Now I want you to notice this, that Rehoboam doesn't make a quick decision. He decides to wait because you could have decided quickly, yes or no, but at least he said, give me three days to think about it because you're ruining my party anyhow. So everyone goes home and Rehoboam makes a decision. Check it out, verse eight. Um, um, I'm sorry, verse six. Then King Rehoboam discussed the matter with the older men who had counseled his father Solomon. What is your advice, he asked. How should I answer these people? Now, 
this is a big deal, and I don't want us to rush past the story like we always do when we just read the Bible. So let me just get us thinking. Rehoboam is just about to put new people in charge of the, his cabinet. He has new advisors coming in to help him run the kingdom. Guys his age. You know, we're out with the old and with the new. Fresh ideas, fresh era. Dad's stuff was great, but you know, we got, you know, it's a new day dawning, right? So for Solomon, who's bringing in his own team of advisors, it's amazing that he actually, in this situation, goes to the older counselors who helped his dad run the kingdom. Why would he do that now when he's replacing them anyway? And I think the answer, without just kind of reading the story between the lines, is these are the guys who enacted the policies of taxation and drafting with his dad. And while he wants to, to bring a new administration in, these are the guys who had the policies that everyone's asking them to change. And if I can just kind of say what becomes obvious in a moment here, Rehoboam wants to keep the taxes. He wants to keep the draft. You know why? That's revenue. That's labor. You don't want to give that up. You have, he has his own plans. And so he goes to the old guys thinking that they're going to say to him, hey, those are our policies. Let's defend them. The older guys will say, hey, here's why we did that. And they'll help him explain to the nation why they need to keep doing it. So he goes to them before he gets rid of them to ask them to help him keep it going. What should I say to the people, he asks. The older counselors replied, they said, you need to calm down. Okay, that's my second Taylor Swift reference today, by the way. There may be more coming, I don't know. Anyhow, he says, you need to calm down. They said, listen, if you are willing to be a servant to these people today and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your loyal subjects. This was unexpected. Can I give some kudos to these older advisors now? They could have easily done what we all tend to do as we get older. They could have doubled down on how they like to do things. That's how, we, that's how we did things. This is, how we, this is the best way. Kids these days, they could have easily just doubled down and defended their administration, their lives, their choices. That's what a lot of us do. You know, we don't pivot very well. And instead, these remarkable people said, they have a point. It is time for a change. It is time for something different. They actually looked at Rhea Bowman and said, yeah, I think we need to do what they're saying. If you will lighten the load that we and your father have imposed on all these years and you'll do the opposite and you'll lighten it, they are going to love you, man. You're going to be a popular king. It's a remarkable piece of advice and honestly one that I think took Rehoboam by surprise. Took him by surprise because I don't think he expected them to say that when they should have defended what they've been doing all along. So instead of listening to them, in verse number 12, it says, but Rehoboam, he rejected the advice of the older men, and instead he asked the opinion of the young men who had grown up with him and who were now his advisors. He goes, well, time to ask the new guys. What is your advice, he asked them. How should I answer these people who want me to lighten the burdens imposed by my father? <laughs> he wanted a better answer. You know how it is when you, when you need to get some input, so you go to someone for input, and then you're like, eh, I don't like that. Next, that's Rehoboam here. What should I say to these people who want me to lighten their load? Well, the young, zealous new guys had a whole different take. In verse 10, the young men replied, this is what you should tell those complainers who want a lighter burden. You tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Now, I'm going to just say this to you and not go too deep. 
but I want you to think about this. Idioms are hard to translate from, from language to language. If you've ever done any translation work, you know how tricky that is. The Bible's full of them, and other translation documents are full of trying to translate a figure of speech that means something in a culture that's hard to translate without it being weird in a different language. And Hebrew is full of tricky spots like this. But that statement right there, by all measurements, is a lot cruder than it looks like it is, and I'm just going to leave it at that. You tell them my little finger is thicker than my father's ones. You tell them that my dad was, my dad was tough. I'm the a, I'm a bigger man, I'm the tougher man. You wait till you, he, he's like, you let them know how it's going to be. The, the young men said to Rehoboam, tell them, yes, my father laid heavy burdens on you, but I'm going to make them even heavier. My father beat you with whips, but I will beat you with scorpions. They're like, you let those people know. They ain't seen nothing. Tell them, I promise that you'll never find another like me, right? That's how it's going to be going forward. So, sure enough, three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam's decision, to hear his decision, as the king had ordered. Can you imagine how these people felt? They came to his coronation desperately wanting relief from the heavy taxing and the heavy drafting. But they didn't know how he'd respond. And for three days, they've been in limbo. You ever ask a big question and you're waiting for the answer and you're hopeful, but you're scared? Right? You're hopeful, but you're scared. You ask, you're going to the boss for your quarterly review or you're asking for a raise or you ask the girl to go out with you or marry you or something and you're just waiting. You don't know what's going to be said. You have hope, but you're also afraid. They come back waiting to hear what Rehoboam said in anticipation. Meanwhile, Rehoboam is mad that they came to his party, that he moved up north so everyone could be there. And instead of celebrating him, they were telling him how to change how he ran the kingdom going forward. Like, who do they think they are? My boss? You know, so he's not happy. No one's ready for this moment. In verse 13, it says, But Rehoboam spoke harshly to the people. For he rejected the advice of the older counselors and followed the counsel of his younger advisors. He told the people, my father laid heavy burdens on you, but I'm going to make them even heavier. My father beat you with whips, but I will beat you with scorpions. Which begs the question, how do you beat someone with scorpions? Do you tie them to the whips? I don't know. Anyhow, it doesn't matter. Um, so the king paid no attention to the people. This turn of events was the will of the Lord, for it fulfilled the Lord's message to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through the prophet Ahijah from Shiloh. In other words, it's a reminder of what we talked about earlier, that, that Rehoboam has now seen full on the natural outcome of his father who turned away from God and from best practices and began to watch the nation deteriorate in his later years. And Rehoboam has made some tragic decisions just now. They're going to finish the job. And God foretold this. God saw the day coming and warned it was coming, and here it was. And everyone there is like, wow, this is why we can't have nice things. I can't help myself. I'm sorry today. Okay, anyhow, they're like, um, so here's what I want to say. Listen, um, I want to give you a statement before we continue the story that I've heard since I was a teenager. Um, since I was a teenager, my, my, my dad was, my, was a pastor during my teenage years. He used to say this a lot, and it has stuck with me and has really been a guiding light to my life story. And I want to share it with you and talk about it. And I want to say, some of our application today is a little bit down the negative principles. But negative principles or don't, don't principles are not negative. 
Because they, they, they protect us. They, they're the most positive thing in the world. They protect us from things we don't want to, places we don't want to end up. They, um, they uh, actually, by default, tell us what path to walk. I want to give you a couple principles today, and one of them that has helped me throughout the decades is this. It's not your circumstances that destroy you. It's your reaction to them. It's so easy in life to come into some bad circumstances and really be freaked out by them and say, what in the world? But the circumstances make things hard and make things challenging, but they're not the thing that wrecks us. It's almost inevitably every single time becomes our reaction to those circumstances. So in the story today, for example, Rehoboam had a bad circumstance. He threw a party up north so the whole nation can show up, and they showed up to tell him, change how the kingdoms run and be, be, you know, be more, do what we want more in your reign than your father did. And he didn't like that. And so his reaction was to say, oh, yeah, I'll show you who's the boss now. Boom. And that's so easily so human, isn't it? And then when we react, we blame the circumstance for our reaction, but really we control the reaction. And it's not our circumstances that can wreck us. It's our reaction to them. Well, sure enough, reactions aren't over. Are you ready? Verse 16, when all Israel realized that the king had refused to listen to them, they responded, down with the dynasty of David. We have no interest in the son of Jesse. Back to your homes, O Israel. Look out for your own house, O David. So the people of Israel return home. They're like, oh, no, you don't. Like, now we got bad blood, okay? That's what they said. They're like, listen, we are out of here. We are leaving this place. We are, you know, Rehoboam, you can have the kingdom of Judah. You can have the tribe of Judah. That was your, it was your grandpa's tribe. And the kingdom was, was his once there before. You can have Judah. The rest of us are breaking off and forming a whole new country, a whole new nation. We're done. We're out of here. So the people of Israel returned home. But Rehoboam, he continued to rule over the Israelites who lived in the towns of Judah. So now the nation is splintered irreparably, as we're going to find out. And Rehoboam is not the bad guy. Rehoboam is, you know, in, in, uh, verse 18, but Re King Rehoboam, and by the way, he knew they were mad. He's like, everyone agrees. I'm the problem. It's me. Re King Rehoboam, he decides to do something. So he sent Adoniram, who was in charge of forced labor, to restore order. But the people of Israel stoned him to death. Think about this. Here's King Rehoboam's great idea. The people don't like my new rules. They decide they're going to break off the nation. I'll send my guy after them. Who's this guy? Adoniram, who is probably overseeing both the draft and the taxes, depending on how you translate it. Probably had people under each department under him that did the whole work. And Rebel's like, Adoniram, go get the people and pull them back in line. How do you think the people who are angry enough to break the kingdom in two over high taxes and drafting, how do you think they feel in that moment when the draft guy and the tax guy shows up? That's the whole problem. So they decide, you know what? You're the problem. And they, they stone him to death. They kill him. And it's not their fault. They look at Rehoboam like, look what you made me do. I mean, you know, they, you sent him. And when this, king, when this news reached King Rehoboam, he quickly jumped into his chariot. He fled to Jerusalem. So, so Rehoboam's like, I got to get out of Shechem before they kill me too. He hightails it down to Jerusalem where it's safe. The problem with that, 
is nothing good starts in a getaway car. I can't help myself today, folks. I am just on a roll here. I'm sorry. Okay, anyhow. Um, but here's what happens in verse 19. It says, and to this day, this is a big deal, and to this day, the northern tribes of Israel have refused to be ruled by a descendant of David. This is a big deal. At this moment, see, I know the kingdom was divided before when David took the throne of Judah and Saul was still holding on to the rest. And so there was a natural fault line built into the system already. But they have been together for two administrations and now it breaks again. And folks, it never comes back together. The reaction of the northern tribes breaks the kingdom forever. And they've now killed somebody. Somebody's now dead. It says, and to this day, they're never been reunited again. They are like, we are never, ever, ever getting back together. I'm so sorry. I, it's just a, a thing. Anyhow, when the people of Israel learned of Jeroboam's return from Egypt, they called an assembly and made him king over all Israel. So only the tribe of Judah remains loyal to the family of David. Now, I, want, I told you I have a couple principles for you today that I want to apply to our lives from the story. And I gave you one. Here's the other, and this is a big idea, and I want you to think about it. And it goes like this. Hey, don't make a decision when you're under the influence, right? We understand what it means to be under the, when we say under the influence, we usually think about drugs and alcohol, don't we? That's what we think about. And that's true, if you are drinking or doing drugs or alcohol, then you definitely don't want to be making decisions when your brain is foggy and your mind is unclear because people make decisions that they later regret or don't even remember at all, like, I did what, you know? And that's, that's, an that's a good application for that. That's true. But I'm not referring to things specifically like drugs and alcohol, although it applies. I'm talking about when you are under the influence of anything. For example, don't make a decision when you're under the influence of grief. You ever been through a loss or going through grief? And it's so easy when you're grieving to make a decision under the influence, to upheaval something, to do something drastic because you're just looking for some relief from the pain you feel. Or you make a decision while you're under the influence of anger. Boy, a lot of people have done things when they're angry. I'm upset, I'm gonna do something right now. You know? Or when you're under the influence of fear and you're afraid and so you make a decision. I'm gonna tell you, some of the worst things that, I have ever done, you've ever done probably in our lives if we look back on it, were decisions we made while under the influence of something. And it's a good time to wait. It's a good time to pause. It's not easy. It's not natural. We'll, we'll talk ourselves out of it. Why, we, why we're doing the right thing, why, we, why we're in control, why we know, why we got this. But it almost never turns out healthy. So it's just a principle. Don't make a decision when you're under the influence. And unfortunately... Israel did. They're like, we don't like what the king said. We're going to break the nation in two right now. We're going to kill a guy, and we're done. So Rehoboam, he goes back home and decides to get his army together. They're going to march up north and take the tribes back, right? Civil war time. But when he gets there, a prophet from God tells Rehoboam, drop it. This is meant to be. You are not going to war with your brothers and your, your fellow Israelites. So just let it go. And Rehoboam listens to that. We'll back up north. We'll spend a little time and we'll, be, we'll finish in this section here. Verse 25, it says, Jeroboam, up north, Jeroboam then built up the city of Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and it became his capital. Is this like, you know, insult to injury for Rehoboam? 
Rehoboam went up to Shechem to have his coronation party so the whole nation could be there. And when he leaves town, Jeroboam's like, you know what? Shechem's a nice place for my new capital. So he puts his capital there. He's like, yeah, let's do that. So he establishes the new kingdom's capital in the place where Rehoboam was having his coronation. It's terrible. Later he went and he built up the town of Peniel. And Jeroboam thought to himself, unless I am careful, the kingdom will return to the dynasty of David. Jeroboam gets nervous that the people are going to calm down and come out of being under the influence of their anger and, and fear and grief, and they're going to go back to reunite. He doesn't want that to happen. So he thinks to himself, he says, hey, when these people go to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord, they will again give their allegiance to King Rehoboam and they will make him, I'm sorry, they will kill me and make him their king instead. Just, let's just tease that out for a moment. Here's what he's picturing. Every year, Israel tended to go down or up wherever they lived to Jerusalem for annual festivals. There were three major festivals in Jerusalem that the nation showed up for. There was, there was more, but there's three major ones. Passover, what we call Pentecost now, and the Feast of Shelters, which is called Sukkot now, in the fall about six months later. And these are common times for people to come down to um, Jerusalem to, to have gatherings. And Jeroboam is thinking, if all these people who have made me their king start going down as part of their religion, as part of their faith, and they go down to Jerusalem to do these festivals, they're going to fall back in love with everything down there. They're going to see the beautiful city. And it is a beautiful city. People traveled to see Jerusalem. I mean, it had been paid for by the, by the tax dollars of Israel and by all the drafted labor. So it's beautiful. And the people are going to go back there, and, and Jeroboam is afraid that they're going, to, they're going to get sentimental, right? They're going to start thinking about the good old days. Many of them served there during their own youth years of being drafted in the king's service. Some of them, their, their children have done the same thing they've done years later. They might go down to Jerusalem for the Passover or for the, for the, for the Feast of Shelters and say to, the, um, say to, the, to their um, Family, hey, kids, look at that section of wall over there. I built that. Or see that part of the temple? I worked in there. And all the sentiment would come rushing back. And people who, who broke off might end up saying, you know what? That was a brash decision. Let's reunite. And Jeroboam couldn't have that. Because if that happened, guess who's the odd man out? Jeroboam. He's like, I can't have him go back. So he puts a plan together in verse 28. On the advice of his counselors, the king made two gold calves. And he said to the people, it is too much trouble for you to worship in Jerusalem. Look, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. What a ridiculous statement. And it sounds familiar, doesn't it? If you've been with us during this journey, that's the same thing that happened. Remember when Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt and they were going through the wilderness and Moses went up into the mountain to get the commandments of God? And down below the people said, we think Moses must have died and we want to... And so they asked Aaron to make a, an idol and he made a golden calf for them and literally said those same words to Israel. This is the God that brought you out of Egypt. Remember that story? And it didn't turn out very well back then. And now here's Jeroboam making two golden calves and saying, oh, um, yeah, these things are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. And the people should have been like, ah, I think I've seen this film before, and I didn't like the ending. You know, they said, no, they, what they should have said was this. Listen, listen, Jeroboam, listen, you're the king now, and we love you, we made you our king, but here's the dealio. We're not stupid. 
We know these golden calves didn't lead us out of Egypt. That was God. And we're not going to, we can still have our faith. Here's what they should have said. We can still have our faith without jumping into that, the, the, the nation of the southern kingdom and the politics again. We can still have our faith and not oust you as our king. So listen, Jeroboam, thanks for your concern, but we're going to keep on worshiping the God who actually did bring us out of Egypt and give us our nation. We're not stupid. But that's not what they said. It says in verse 29 that he placed these calf idols in the cities of Bethel and in Dan at either end of his kingdom. That way they were easily located for people to go to rather than down south to Jerusalem. And it says this thing became a great sin. For the people worshipped the idols, traveling as far north as Dan to worship the one there. It's such a silly idea. Like, we're just going to sit there and say, yeah, sure. This thing that, you know, we, we made out of gold is, is, the, is, is my deity now. But they went that direction. They have, and they've done, they've done something that's almost insane, and yet it's so relatable. They have decided because Rehoboam has offended them and has hurt them, that they're going to break off the relationship with him. They killed somebody, and they decided, you know what else? We're done with your whole belief system. We're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. The whole thing is gone. We're done with all of it. And it's so human to do that, right? We do that when people hurt us. We want to walk away. Look, how many times have people been hurt by someone, a person of faith, by a spiritual leader, by a church, by a Christian who mistreated somebody, and we should never do that because it's, it's a blight to the name of our Savior who taught us better. But unfortunately, Christians and churches have hurt people way too many times. The stories are, maybe you've experienced that or someone in your family's experienced that, and it's devastating. But when Christians hurt somebody or churches hurt somebody, how many times has the temptation been to say, I'm gonna break off from you, but you know what? I don't like you. I don't like anything you stand for. I'm gonna just reject your whole belief system. The whole thing is wrong. When in reality, people who behave that way aren't representing the teachings of Jesus or God. But when we're angry, we're like, I'm done with you, and I'm just done with your whole thing. I'm done with all your, everything. I'm going to throw the whole thing out the window. It's so human and so natural to just walk away from too much as a reaction to the things that bothered us that we wash our hands from and toss the whole thing out. And that's what Israel did. They walked away from the whole kit and caboodle including the God who brought them to that place because they were mad at Rehoboam and said, that's your beliefs. We're just going to say these golden calves we made are now our religion. Works for us. Verse 31, Jeroboam also erected buildings at the pagan shrines and he ordained priests from the common people, those who were not from the tribes, the priestly tribe of Levi. Explanation real quick. Levites headed back down to Jerusalem because that's the system of the temple funded them mostly for their livelihood. And they, that was their whole life. They went back to the south. And so Jeroboam's like, well, who needs them anyhow? Who wants to be a priest in this new religion? And they're like, I'll be a priest. Okay, you are a priest of the golden calf. I got a special robe and everything. It's really awesome, you know. So he makes a whole new system, a whole new set of leadership. So silly. It's so silly. But this is what they did. And Jeroboam instituted a religious festival in Bethel that was held on the 15th day of the 8th month, by the way, in imitation, in imitation of the annual festival of shelters in Judah. In other words, he's replacing a festival that would draw them south. He said, don't go there. We got our own party going on. The priest of the golden calf and their fancy robes will throw a party for you here in Bethel. Don't leave. And he, um, there at Bethel, 
He made himself, he himself offered sacrifices to the calves he had made. And he appointed priests for the pagan shrines that he had made. So on the 15th day of the eighth month, a day that he himself had designated, Jeroboam offered sacrifices on the altar at Bethel. He instituted a religious festival for Israel, and he went up to the altar to burn incense. And that is where we're going to stop today because what happens next is crazy. And we don't have time to get into it this morning. What I wanted to do today as we start our new little series called Thrones, I wanted to begin by, breaking, by helping us see the kingdom get divided. The kingdom's divided. There's the house of Rehoboam and there's the house of Jeroboam. And they're going to go very different directions from here. And I hate to tell you this, but the northern kingdom never goes a good direction one more day in their existence. And they bring hardship upon hardship upon hardship for generations until the day comes when their kingdom doesn't even exist anymore. And the southern kingdom's left to stand. But that's down the road quite a ways. And there's a whole lot of treachery and kings being overthrown and mutinies and murders and uh, marriages and all sorts of wild stuff that happens before we get there but the northern kingdom never goes down a good track again. They, they're strong at times militarily, but they're never strong morally, and they end up in a bad place. We'll continue the story in our Thrones series next week. For today, I want to remind you what I said earlier, because I hope that you don't just get the, a good Bible story and maybe the felt need of knowing the Bible a little bit better in stories like this. I hope that you also get some practical guidance. That's what history is there for, to remind us what to do and what not to do. So let me just remind us all today of what I said earlier. First of all, don't make a decision when you're under the influence. I've told so many people in the, through the years, hey, especially when the time of grief, you know, a spouse, you know, you lose a spouse to death or to divorce or, you know, you lose um, you know, maybe a, another family member, a parent, child, sibling, whatever. Um, you know, you're going through grief and people oftentimes are so upset that they want to make some major upheavals. I'm going to just get rid of my house. I'm going to just quit my job. I'm just going to find a, I'm going to rebound into a new relationship. I'm just looking, because what we do is we're, we're desperate. We're hurting and we look for something that will placate the pain. And yet we're not ready to make a decision yet. So I always tell people when you lose someone significant like that, follow the one year rule. Make no major decisions if at all possible for the first year. You say, Arlen, why a one-year rule? That's because no one wants to hear me say a two-year rule, or I'd say two years if I could. But wait, at least a year, for crying out loud. Because in that first year, it's so easy. And I can't tell you how many times in a quarter of a century of being a pastor, I've watched people do things quickly because they're trying to run from some pain. They're under some influence of, of grief or, or fear or anger, and they make a decision. And then they, six months or a year or so later, they're regretting it, and they can't undo it. To make a decision when you're under the influence of anger. People are in jail for that reason. People have lost careers for that reason. People have lost relationships for that reason. I was angry and I just did what I felt like doing. And later I was like, why did I do that? Well, you were angry and you made a decision under the influence. When you're under the influence of fear, best thing to do is step back, calm down, pray, and wait. And here's the, here's the thing. I know what I'm about to say, I know the pushback, but hear me out. You can always make that decision later, 
but you can't unmake it once you make it. And other people say, oh, no, you can't make it later. i got to do it now because later's too late. I know how we rationalize our brash decisions. I know. I get it. There's always a reason why we, I really am thinking clearly, and I know what I'm doing, and this is right, and this is the only way, and don't tell me otherwise. We're like Rehoboam. Go from person to person until someone tells you what you want to do is the right decision. But, but I'm telling you, you can always act later. It's hard to unact a lot of times. So please, and this is just, I'm, look, I'm getting older than I used to be. I'm pretty young, some of you still, I know. But here's the thing. Don't make a decision. I've seen it too many times. And I've done it myself. We've all done it, haven't we? Maybe on a small level, maybe on a big level. Don't make a decision when you're under the influence of anything. Wait, pray, give it time, come out of the fog, and then you'll be better equipped. And here's why that's important. It's important because, as I said earlier, it's not your circumstances that destroy you. It's your reaction to them. You say, oh, no, I'm pretty sure it's my circumstances that are wrecking me. No, they may make things very hard. That, that loss may make things very difficult to go forward through. That, that person that hurts you may make things very difficult for you to abide. That setback may make things very complicated. I get that. But it won't destroy you. But boy, I'll tell you, so many times in life people have made reactions to circumstances like that that actually did cause far more long-term and serious damage. And so wait and pray and, and, and heal. There used to be an old custom, even in ancient times, even in ancient Israel, where when someone went through some tough time, they had to take a certain period of time off just to cope with it. Most of us don't have the luxury of taking serious time off to cope with things. We're too busy. But we can at least not rush decisions during, at, during challenging times of life when possible. And I hope the story is interesting today, but I hope the principles can help guide your path as much as they've guided my path for the past several decades. Because the mindset will get you through the inevitable seasons of life that we all have to walk through in the healthiest way possible. Let's pray.